the professor. And the conversation was the same every day. The professor would have his tuning fork. He would hit it on the edge and say, you hear that? Yeah, what's that? That's middle C. Middle C was just like that yesterday. It's just like that today. It'll be like that tomorrow. Unlike the tenor up above on your floor who sings out of tune, unlike the pianist downstairs who plays a piano that's out of tune, middle C will never change. And that's what we'll see in this first part, the God who never changes as we talk about these different magnitudes. God is, the long word is immutable, which means God's the same today as he was in these passages you read in the Old and the New Testament. God never changes. The magnitude of sin begin, of course, with uh, Abraham. Let me read you the verses that uh, focus on this, 11 through 14 in 2 Chronicles 36. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against the king Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priest and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abomination of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he made holy in Jerusalem. The people were being led by evil kings, and it goes back to, if you remember the name Hezekiah, that was Josiah's great-grandfather. And Hezekiah was another man who did right before the Lord. And then all of a sudden comes, comes uh, Manasseh. And imagine the abomination of taking a temple that's focused on God and bringing in idols and worshiping idols. And so just completely changing the structure of worship that the people wanted before and followed their leaders now into evil. And then the four after Josiah, of course, were the same way. But sin, as we know it, of course, began with Adam, and we understand that. And Adam is our federal head, so Scripture says when we're born, we're born into sin because of Adam's sin. And you can see where things are headed in the lives of Cain and Abel. And then very quickly after that, uh, Cain killed Abel because his sacrifice wasn't honored the way Abel's was. He had the fruit of the ground, and, and Abel had a blood sacrifice. <clears throat> We see much the same thing as we work our way through Scripture with the golden calf. Remember that when Moses is up in the mountain and uh, Aaron's down below and the people basically say, we need to see something that we can worship. I mean, this having, having a God but we can't see him isn't working too well for us. So Aaron fashioned one. Remember uh, what he said to Moses when Moses came down. He blamed it on the people. It was the people who did it. But they sinned greatly in, uh, in that time period. Exodus 32, 7 through 8 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Notice God's terminology here. Moses is in charge, and he says to Moses, Go down for your people, who have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And what a, what a change for the people of Israel to have the king, king of Egypt come into their land and take over. I mean, they had left Egypt through the guidance of the Lord. 
and were taken into the land by the Lord. And now here comes the king of Egypt, changes the name of their king, and takes over their land. What a, what a change for them, too. And what he's talking about when he talks about the people coming in is uh, talking about the prophets. And there's a New Testament parable in Matthew. Matthew 21, verses 33 to 41, that talks about the prophets. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And you've heard this before, but the progression is they kill the servants. He sends more servants, and it goes on, and he says, Ah, I'm going to send my son. Surely that's going to work. And it didn't work. They killed his son, which, of course, gave to us eternal life. So there's a, there's a different ending for us in all these things that took place. But the, but the servants are pictures of the prophets who spoke to Israel, who speak through the word to us and brought good words to them about what they could do. Because remember, the covenants were progressive and changing. The covenant was God says to the people, you do this and I'll do this. If you don't do that, here's what I'm going to do to you. So what do the people do? Things go well for a while and all of a sudden they violate the covenant. And then there's a new covenant, which is a little more expansive. So God doesn't abandon them. And to me, that's an incredible picture in spite of what they did and failed to do, God doesn't abandon them. And these covenants point the way to the covenant of the New Testament that we're under today, which is, okay, I'm doing it all for you. Okay, I'm sending my son as a sacrifice. And then after that, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. So that's what the voices of the prophets were pointing to. Tim Keller preaches at, uh, used to preach at a church in Manhattan called Redeemer. And Keller wrote the book Prodigal God, which we used a few years back in Sunday school classes. And I think we still have copies of it in the bookstore. But Keller says this. Now think of this in your own life. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And yet, in spite of our sin, what we can cling to is the grace of God. And I usually talk about those definitions, and I haven't for a long time, but remember, grace means I get what I don't deserve, which is salvation. I don't deserve salvation. I deserve the wrath of God, which Christ took for me. So grace is I get what I don't deserve, Mercy is, I don't get what I do deserve. So God's that picture of both grace and mercy, giving me what I don't deserve, and Christ's sacrifice takes the place of me so I don't get what I do deserve, which is God's wrath. Like I said, the covenants of God uh, show the persistence of God. So this is the magnitude of God's persistence and grace we're talking about. Listen to verse 15 again. In 2 Chronicles 36, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God had compassion on his people and has compassion today on us. What about this persistence and grace? How do we see it in other places in the word? 
Uh, a story I love to read is the story of Rahab. And remember when they went into the land, uh, there's a city, Jericho, that they're going to spy out. And so the two spies uh, were probably going to be killed for sure, but they had to hide out someplace. So they, they hid on Rahab's roof, as I recall, under bundles of flax. So she hid them. She kept them away from the authorities. And they got away and went back and made their report about the city of Jericho. And she was told, look, when we come back, we want you to hang this in the window. And anybody who's here with you will be protected because of what you've done for us. Remember Rahab's job, in quotes? She was a prostitute, according to Scripture. Another one of God's people, because she became a woman of faith that God redeemed. So Rahab sheltered the spies. And another thing that's important to me is when you look at the genealogy of Christ, there are two of them in the New Testament spelled out. Uh, Rahab was the mother of Boaz who's in the genealogy. Remember Boaz in the book of Ruth? And all of a sudden, here's, uh, here's this link in the genealogy that God fills in in an incredibly improbable way. Who would have thought that God would pull a prostitute into the line? But for us, too, it's all about forgiveness, isn't it? It's all about forgiveness. I am not what I used to be. I am what God is making me into as he changes my life. Rahab. And how can we talk about God's persistence and grace without talking about David? David, the incredibly sinful king who coveted and had sex with Bathsheba, made sure Bathsheba's husband went into the part of the battle where he'd be killed. I mean, this was King David. What was the label for King David that we read? He was a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. And Psalm 51 is that incredible psalm of David's forgiveness, David asking for God's forgiveness. And that's the key. When I sin, I need to confess. Now, as a believer, my sin is forgiven, right? Past, present, and future. But my sin today impacts my relationship with God. So I need to confess it. I need to get my relationship back the way it needs to be. Same thing with your kids or your wife. Not that I ever do anything wrong with Diana, but, but when that might happen, I have to confess it and ask for forgiveness in that. And that's, uh, that's been a pattern that serves well and hopefully has served you well too over the years. And then there's a story in the New Testament that I love because uh, you may have heard me label Peter this way before, but, but Peter to me was that this time the disciple became the apostle that I like to talk about as the ready, fire, aim apostle. If Peter was just all energy, all get up and go, jump out of the boat, try and get there and get through the water, and, and uh, I'm not going to deny you, Jesus. And, uh, and after that happened, it talks about him weeping bitterly because he knew what he'd done. So Peter was energetic and just needed to be channeled by the indwelling Holy Spirit, which we read about when we get to the book of Acts. You know, the Holy Spirit, remember, for you and me too, is that other comforter that Jesus told them would come. And the other comforter in the original languages, the way it refers to it is, I'm going to send you somebody who's just like me. 
You've benefited from me. You've enjoyed me teaching. You've enjoyed me being with you. The Holy Spirit will come and dwell within you. And he's just like me. He'll do those things that I did. He'll help us understand scripture. He'll convict us of sin. He'll do all those things that Jesus did with the disciples. And we have him dwelling within us. Remember, Keller said that God's grace is greater than you could have imagined. Young Brazilian girl named uh, Katharina, probably 18 or 19 years old, was just living in desperate poverty in, uh, excuse me, in Brazil, and had to get away, so she ran away. You know, her bed in that time was just a mat on the floor, and she thought, surely she can do better in the city. So she went to Rio de Janeiro, and her mother was distraught, and Maria said, I've got to go find her, because I know what happens with a young girl in the city who has no money. So on the way to find her, Maria stopped off at a store that took photographs and had a bunch of photographs made up of herself. And when she got to Rio de Janeiro, she wrote on the back of each picture and put them up any place she could find to put them up. She was persistent. But then she ran out of money and had to go home. But one day, Katharina was walking down the stairs in the hotel that she worked in, in a Rahab-type job. And as she's walking down the stairs, she glances at the mirror and says, Hey, I know that face. And she walked down and took the picture, and it was her mom. And on the back it said, No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, come home. And she did. That's persistence that God uses with us. You may get to the place where you say, the things that I've done are things that are too hard for God to forgive. But God says, come home. Come home. God alone has always been and always will be faithful. So in all these things that are happening, whatever is taking place, especially in now with all the complications of this virus, God is faithful to all of his promises. And a lot of times we don't know why something is taking place, but God does. He has purpose. And as we work through the lament, we're working, working toward that place where we say, I just trust you, God. You know, I've had my say. This is not easy at all. Uh, but I've learned now that I just need to trust you to strengthen me and bring me through. And that's what Paul says in Corinthians. Remember, he says that, that nothing will overtake us but such as is common to man, but God will offer a way of escape. So God knows we've got the ability to persevere through things and gives us a way out, too. Doesn't mean we always do it because we still sin. I still sin and don't do what God tells me I need to do. And that's where that confession comes in. But God is still faithful to provide all that we need. The faithfulness of God is seen in those last two verses. And let me read those again to you from Second Chronicles 36. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, Jerusalem which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people 
May the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Now remember the importance of the temple. The temple was where God met with the people through the priests, through the high priests. That's where God spoke to them. You know, we've got the Bible today that God speaks to us through, but in those days, it was directly through the high priest, which is why at the time of the crucifixion of Christ, the veil was rent from top to bottom because that dynamic then changed. And you and I are all believer priests, so we don't need to go into the priest of the temple and find out what God has to say for us. So that was very important, the temple was. So when it was destroyed, that sent a significant message to the people. And now that it's going to be rebuilt, also sends an important message to the people. Now remember, Cyrus was in all likelihood not a believer. And when you read scripture and it talks about a king or somebody in authority who, who embraces the God of the Israelites, that doesn't necessarily mean that he embraces only the God of the Israelites. Because often the kings and the rulers in those days were pantheistic. In other words, they couldn't have too many gods. So if they saw the God of the Israelites was doing incredible things, we got to have him too. We need to worship him too. So he became just one of many gods they worshipped. But at the same time, like with Cyrus, God could move through Cyrus and get him to do what he intended to have done. So Ezra worked on the temple. And Nehemiah worked on the walls later. Now, it's, if you look at First and Second Chronicles both, the expectation is that it was one book at one time, and it's possibly Ezra who wrote the book of Chronicles. Same thing with Ezra and Nehemiah were one book, likely mostly written by Ezra and maybe some others. But Ezra was the priestly one who rebuilt the temple. And then when Nehemiah is done with the walls, and you can read Nehemiah and see all the troubles he had getting through rebuilding the walls. There's a fascinating book, that uh, we've taught in Sunday school here some years back by Chuck Swindoll called Hand Me Another Brick. And it's all about Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. And what Nehemiah went through, starting out as the cupbearer to the king and progressing all the way to being the governor of uh, the area around the temple. And he was tasked with rebuilding the temple. And there were a lot of people who didn't want the temple rebuilt. So he had to contend with them. He had to put out security. So if you have a chance to read the book of Nehemiah, that's what's taking place there. That was the second piece of what needed to happen, which was rebuilding the walls. What about some other promises of God that were fulfilled? Well, the Israelites into the land. God promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. But Israel, these are some things you need to do. And they were okay for a while and up to a point, and then things kind of fell off. So was the land completely subdued? No. No, but in those cases where it was, they could see the faithfulness of God to his promises, especially when they looked to him for strength and power in battle. When they took their eyes off of him, then things were disastrous. Israelites into the land was God's faithfulness. In this passage, Israelites back from exile, same thing. This is going to be 70 years, and then you're coming back. And they did, because that's what God promised. The sacrifice of his son was part of the plan of God. I mentioned before the giving of the Holy Spirit was part of the plan of God, was a promise. And let's look at a couple of passages in Revelation because these are important passages because they are promises 
that speak to what we can depend upon. First, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Who's the bride? We are. The church. The church of people who are no longer with us, but we're believers. The church today of people who are believers and those in the future as Christ tarries who become believers are all part of the bride of Christ. And you know, one interesting comment about where the church is. It, it's easy for us sometimes to think that the church is an American westernized event, the worldwide church of God. So we, we forget about the fact that it is worldwide. Those of you who have had an opportunity to travel internationally might have a, a different perspective on that. But a few years ago, the focus of the church in the world was in two places. It was in Africa and it was in Asia. And like I said, we think about the focus being here in the U.S., but the growth of the church was incredible both in Africa and in Asia, particularly in Korea. So it's God's work. God does what he wants to do where he wants to do it. And it's not always with us. And the angel said to me, this is verse uh, 9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Your invitation came with your changing or you being called to be a believer. So we have invitations to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It will be the greatest supper you've ever had. And then in Revelation 21, another promise. And, and this, is, this is great for us. It's great as you think about those in your family who have passed on, who especially were, were stricken with terrible infirmities, perhaps, or disabilities. Revelation 21, 3 and 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What an incredible time, isn't it? You think about the pain that those who are close to you have gone through or are going through, or you think about the pain you're going through. Think about the tears that you've shed or will shed. And John is saying in Revelation, at that point, when Christ returns, or when you pass away, that's all gone. No more mourning, no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying. So we talked about the magnitude of our sin. We talked about the magnitude of God's persistence and grace, and the magnitude of God's promises fulfilled. So what can I do in the week ahead? with some of this information? Well, go back to those four elements of lament. And I think, they're, I think they're 
they're on the uh, church website as a PDF when it has a study guide for, for lament. But think about those and, and look at what you're doing, what your complaints or what your crying is, and look toward God's trust as that final point. You know, take it up with the Lord in prayer. Tell him how you feel. It's like I said, when you read the Psalms, the Psalmists can be pretty brutal. And maybe the first time you read one of those, you wonder how can they get away with talking to God that way. And like I said, God knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're saying. So think about that. Think about the day you're dwelling in is a day that the Lord has made for whatever is taking place. God's made that day and there's purpose. Consider those verses in Revelation that that's your future you're headed towards as a believer. If you're not a believer today, you need to talk to one of us, Pastor Kurt, one of the elders, and talk to them about becoming a believer in Christ because that's our future. That's our future. And then remember we need short accounts. We need short accounts with God when we know we've, we've sinned and done that which doesn't please him. We need to confess and get back into the right relationship with God. And we need to short accounts with each other. We, we're not perfect yet. I mean, that's coming. But we, so we'll do things that impact other people in a way that we need to go and say, look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that. We need short accounts with each other. So my prayer for you this week is the Lord will speak to you through some of the things we've said, be an encouragement to you as you reflect upon this whole area of lament. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the reminders that come to us through your word and the understanding that comes through your indwelling Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. We love you. And we trust that all you have for us is that which is good for us ultimately. We know it tests us. We know it changes us, but you're changing us in ways that we need to be conformed to your image. Help us to have persistence ourselves in where we're headed and what we're doing. Thank you for those who are participating with the music. May we be blessed through it this morning in all that we sing and reflect upon. In Jesus' name, amen.